Well, good morning, Victory Life Church. Pastor Otto coming to you this morning. It is my great privilege to welcome you to our worship time together. How are you doing? Have you enjoyed this series on Abraham? I know I have learned a lot of things that I totally did not expect. And you know what? I have to tell you, I learned some trivia this week uh, about this series that Pastor Matt is preaching on. May I, may I share that with you? And it comes in the form of a question. Here we go. Do you know who the smartest man in the Bible was? It was Abraham because he knew a lot. A lot. That's right. Abraham indeed knew a lot. And I don't know about you, but I've been learning a lot as well during this entire series because the life of Abraham has been teaching me so much, and maybe you as well, about how gracious and compassionate God is as a teacher himself. I think this is part of the reason the Bible says God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and rich in love. Our God in heaven indeed is a gracious teacher, and I hope that you're learning that during during this series. So we're looking forward to learning more today about the life of Abraham. And if this is your first time joining us today, we want to extend and express a special welcome to you. You can check us out at vlchurch.com. And on our front page, there is a new here banner. If you'd like to connect with us, just click on that and follow the prompts. And that'll come straight to me and I will connect with you uh, sometime this week. But once again, welcome. I want to make mention of a few announcements uh, that are important for things that are upcoming this week. One big thing in particular. As you may recall, we started Wednesday night drive-in worship services this past Wednesday, and it was amazing. It was outstanding. It was a great time to see many of you who decided to join us. But we will continue our Wednesday night drive-in service uh, this Wednesday night at 6.30 p.m., our worship service uh, will include some worship time together with AJ and his team, and also Pastor Matt will be preaching and teaching uh, for a while as well. And so if you plan to join us, we want to uh, make mention of something else that uh, is critical for you to know about so that you can connect with uh, us via worship and also with the, with the scriptures that Pastor Matt will use for his teaching. We mentioned last week, and we've been talking a lot about this over these last several weeks, that you want to download the Church Center app. Uh, it's very easy to do. Our church administrator sent you an email with a link to do this. If you need that link again, just reach out to us here. Reach out to me or our church administrator. We'll be happy to make sure that you can find that app. Because on the Church Center app, you will have access to the lyrics, the scriptures, and you'll be able to register and see what's upcoming uh, with uh, church services and everything VLC. And so, once again, uh, if you need help with that, reach out to us and we'll be happy to let you know how to connect to our Church Center app. Well, once again, thank you for joining us in worship today. Let's bow for a word of prayer as we transition into a time of worship together. Let's pray. God in heaven, when Jesus taught us how to pray, he simply said, may your kingdom come 
on earth as it is in heaven. And may our words this morning declare that you are the king of our hearts. That is why we come to you now, because you are in charge. You have supreme authority. You are number one. There's no one bigger, higher, stronger, more loving, compassionate, and gracious. This is why you are the only king forever. And we declare this in the name of the King of Kings, our Lord Jesus, and all of God's people said, amen. Tell him and declare, you are the only king forever. Banner high and declare the name of Jesus together. He alone. 
mission. Let's sing to him. My hope is built. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness.
every hope, every fear, and all our faith in you, Jesus. That you became the cornerstone by going to Mount Calvary. And on Calvary, you were nailed to a cross. You were raised before men on this earth. You bled from your head back, your side, and your feet. The sin of the world was upon you. The punishment that should have been ours, you took. But you were without sin. eyes, you are a sacrifice, holy and pleasing. It became the sacrifice for all. Everybody on this stage, everybody in this room, everybody watching on their television, and everybody across the United States and the world, Lord, you died for.
wrongdoing there is a consequence and ever since the Garden of Eden humanity has been stricken by a proclivity towards sin and wrongdoing you knew this from that point forward and from that point forward you made a commitment to pay the price for all of our failures mistakes and shortcomings this is why we sing, no power on earth, not even the grave, can separate us from mercy and grace, for you are faithful to save. Thank you, God, for Calvary. Thank you for taking the initiative so that we didn't have to pay the price on our own. It's in Jesus' name that we thank you for these things. And all of God's people said, amen. Once again, thank you for worshiping with us today, and as I worshiped along with you this morning, it prompted me to think about a very well-known verse that you likely know in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, that says, for it is by grace that you have been saved, and this not of yourselves, but it's a gift of God. And as you likely know, this is one main reason why we exist as a church to spread this amazing message that God has a free gift and that he paid the price for you and I. And this gift is for everyone. And so to keep on giving this gift to others through the ministry of Victory Life Church, we are in fact going to transition into a time of giving uh, to Victory Life Church. And so if you have come prepared to give today, uh, we've made it very easy for you. Uh, you can give online at vlchurch backslash give and just follow the prompts there. Or you can text to give by texting to the number 73256 with the message VLC3833 and just follow the prompts from there. But once again, thank you for giving to the ministry of Victory Life Church so that we can continue telling the story to the world around us. So thank you. Can we pray together? 
Dear Lord, we give because you first gave to us. May you pave the way for us to continue giving the gift of God to the world around us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Good morning to you. I hope you have a wonderful Memorial Day weekend. Of course, we want to remember the true meaning of Memorial Day, which is there are so many people who have fought and who have died in order that we might have our freedoms. I think there's so many of us who have been connected, especially at Victory Life, to someone who fits into that category. And we want to remember all of those who have fought and especially who have died for the service of our country. So I just would ask you this weekend, as you are enjoying the festivities, say a prayer. Uh, take a time to remember those who have fought that we might be free. It truly is a blessing to live in this country. It truly is a blessing to know there are people who have given the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. Let's pray and we'll get into our message this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you to live in such a strong country. Lord, we thank you for those who have given their lives that we might be free. Lord, we ask that we would memorialize and we would take time to be thankful for them over the course of this weekend. Lord, it is right to celebrate because we have freedom. Let us celebrate in light of those who have given their all for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles today, I'm going to invite you to turn to chapter 16 of Genesis. One of the statements that people will oftentimes make that is almost always false is, well, I learned my lesson. That, that always sort of makes me laugh when somebody says that, because we as human beings would love if the hot messes we get ourselves into actually were one and done's. But I, I think I speak for a lot of us in saying, I might say, well, I learned my lesson, but I will probably make that mistake again. In fact, we as human beings, we sometimes make mistakes over and over and over again until we get it right. Maybe a more true statement would be after we've made a big foul up, you know, I am learning my lessons. Maybe that would be a better statement. I often tell uh, brides who are doing premarital counseling with me, I want you to look at the man next to you and I want you to promise that you will tell him what's wrong with him over and over and over again until he gets it. Now, in a former generation, you might say, well, that means you're giving wives the opportunity to nag their husbands. I I'm not at all. I'm just recognizing that it takes men a lot of times of being confronted with their weaknesses in order to change. I tell husbands, you need to listen over and over and over again until you stop fouling up because your wife is telling you the truth. You need to do something about that. Now, the lessons that we learn throughout Scripture are many. There are so many lessons about proper morals and ethics and how to be righteous and, and how to think correctly. But I think the most important lessons that we can learn from Scripture are lessons about God. We learn a lot of things about us, but the lessons we learn about God, those are the truly transformative lessons. And today we're going to learn something about God in the midst of folks that just seemingly had never learned their lesson. Because Abram and Sarai are going to get themselves into a hot mess again. The people of God, our father and mother in faith, they're going to once again 
given to fear and lies and, and to taking things into their own hands and creating a mess for themselves that's going to take generations and generations to fix. Once again, their sexual ethics are going to cause them great pain. But God's going to unravel the knot and show us things about himself that we need to learn today. In the life of faith, God does play favorites, but here's the good news. We're all his favorite. And today, we're going to take the focus off for just a moment of this father and mother in faith, Abram and Sarai, and put it on one of God's other favorites. It happens to be an Egyptian slave girl. Her name is Hagar. Let's read chapter 16, verses 1 and following. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant that I may obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. Now, I have to explain to you today that I'm going to have to do some teaching as we go throughout this story, because this mess is messy, and there's a lot going on here in the culture that we're going to try to explain. So before we get into the messed up ethics of this, let's just go back to the issues at hand. Let's set the context for this story that to our ears just sounds unbelievable. The context here is that Abram and Sarai had been in Canaan now for 10 years. God had made them two great promises. One, their descendants are going to be like the sand of the earth, like the stars in the sky, and those descendants are going to one day own the land of Canaan. They're going to own this entire swath of land from the river Euphrates all the way to Egypt. Those are two great big promises. They're in the land for 10 years, and it seems that they are no closer to the promises coming true than when they got there. They don't have any children. How's God going to do this? How's God going to make this happen? We still have no children. Imagine for a moment if, if we had missionaries from our church that kept sending us their yearly reports, and after 10 years of supporting them, they said, we have made zero converts. We would probably look at those missionaries and say, you know what, maybe this isn't what God told you to do. Maybe this isn't God's call upon your life. You haven't made any converts in 10 years. Why don't you come home? They have had no children in 10 years and living in the land of Canaan. It would be normal, I guess, for people to question the voice of God, even though God has shown up over and over and over again. So when Sarai's thinking, she needs to help this situation along. She's got to help fulfill the promise of God. And she wants to do so using what's called a, a, a Hittite tradition. The Hittites were a people group just to the north of Canaan, and we see throughout the life of Abram and Sarai that they were, they were very influenced by Hittite culture. And this tradition within Hittite culture went something like this. In a wealthy household, when a woman of childbearing years decided she did not want any more children, she may look at her husband and say, don't come near me ever again, because I don't want to go through that again. And, and in that world where marriage was more about prestige and protection than it was about love, oftentimes a wealthy woman would say, you know what, husband? I will give you one of my servants to be your wife, and then our household will expand through your union with her. This sounds crazy to us, but this was a Hittite tradition. It was a surrogate mother type of situation. And this is what Sarai says to Abram. Let's do this Hittite thing. 
Granted, I haven't had any children, but we want our household to grow. I, as your first and most important wife, we want our household to grow. So let's do what the culture around us is doing. Let's go ahead and, and embrace their sexual ethic, which is to expand our household through multiple marriage. So she decides, and the Bible makes it very clear, that she takes the hand of Hagar, her Egyptian servant. It's not Abram's servant. Abram doesn't, this, this, this woman, Hagar, does not belong to Abram. This, this, this is Sarah's servant and gives her, Abram, to marry. And the Bible makes a big deal out of the fact that Hagar was a wife, not a concubine. Because wives have protection. Wives have privilege. And that's what takes place in this exchange. Now, we don't understand polygamy in our culture at all, and rightly so. It doesn't make a lot of sense to us. In the ancient world, this was a sort of normal practice. The ancient world wouldn't understand our sexual mores whatsoever. They, 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 they would look at some of the things that pass for okay in our culture and go, what? What are, you, what are you doing? In the same way that we would look at this particular situation and go, what? What are you doing? But I want, I want to make it clear that this was not the sexual ethic of God. Let's just put that out there. The writer of Genesis, once again, doesn't tell us what to think about a lot of things. Just tells us, he just tells the story. But way back in Genesis, when talking about Adam and Eve, he does tell us what to think. He says, and a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And by this two becoming one flesh, God says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. God did not create Adam, Eve, and Evelyn. He just created Adam and Eve. He, he didn't feel the need to create more women in order to uh, multiply and be fruitful and multiply. He put two together, and he put his standard together. This would have been passed down to Abram and Sarai. Maybe this is the reason that they are in a single marriage all the way up until this point, because they knew the ethic of God. But they embraced the sexual ethics of the culture, and it becomes a mess. We're not supposed to look on this with favor. The writer of Genesis frames verses 1 through 4 the same way the temptation in the Garden of Eden is framed. The verbiage and the usage of the words and the way the sentences are structured are the exact same as the temptation in the Garden. That, that implies that Abram should have looked at Sarai and go, no, that's a really bad idea. That, that we shouldn't do that. This isn't something we should engage in. But Abram listened to the voice of his wife. That, that's a colloquialism in Hebrew for he obeyed the voice of his wife. And he says, yes, let's go ahead and do this. Of course, polygamy always ends up in a hot mess in the Old Testament. God doesn't always outlaw what's not his best, and polygamy is not outlawed in the Old Testament. But it certainly is not his best. This is going to create a hot mess. The sadness of Leah and Rachel is going to be a hot mess. The strife of the sons of Jacob are going to be a hot mess. Weeping Hannah in 1 Samuel is a hot mess. The rebellious sons of David, because they have different mothers, is a hot mess. Solomon's wives turning him away from God, hot mess. It's clear that we're learning over and over again that if you don't stick with the sexual ethic of God, there are issues inherent. And with that said, polygamy is not a great idea. We're not supposed to be impressed with the plan. There's no beautiful sister wives thing going on here. In fact, it's going to get messy in a hurry. Look at 4b. When Hagar saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt upon her mistress, that being Sarai. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. 
But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant's in your power. Do as you please. And then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and Hagar fled from her. Well, this is a great story, right? Everybody here is in the wrong. Everybody's wrong in this story. There's levels of wrong. There's people who behave even worse than other people, but everybody's wrong here. Let's start with the least wrong. Let's start with Hagar. We have no idea how she looked upon this marriage with Abram. From being a servant girl in Sarai's, uh, in Sarai's uh, company, that, to, to move up to have being, being married to Abraham, Abram in the ancient world, that, that could be seen as a step up, but we have no idea what her feelings were. She might have felt very victimized from the beginning. With that said, we do know what she does after she conceives this child. She looks upon her mistress with contempt. So we don't know if she talked bad about her, was just giving her dirty looks, maybe saying, hey, sir, I couldn't conceive for Abraham, but I have. That's, that's the story here. Hagar's being mean. Hagar's showing very little emotional IQ here. She's, she's, she's being mean-spirited towards Sarai, and Sarai doesn't like it. So she goes to Abram. She doesn't go to Hagar and hash it out. She goes to Abram and blames Abram. This is all your fault. And the Bible doesn't go ahead and say, no, it wasn't Abram's fault. We're, we're to kind of assume it is Abram's fault because of that structure of one through four. We, Abram should have gone, no, we shouldn't have done this. But she goes to Abram and said, that wife of yours has done violence upon me. That's what verse 5 says when it says that she did wrong done to me. That was the Hebrew word for violence. She's been violent towards me. I'm the victim here. Sarah says, I'm the magnanimous one. I'm the one who made this plan. I'm the one who let you go into my servant so that we could have children. This is all your fault, Abram. And then when Abram backs up in fear of his wife, she oppresses, it says in the Hebrew. She deals harshly. She oppresses Hagar. Not a good look for Sarai, but the look for Abram's the worst. The look for Abram is absolutely awful. Not only did he not look at Sarai when this plan is hatched to go, no, this is a bad idea. He then says to his first wife about his second wife, well, she's your servant, do whatever you want. Wife is the key word here. In the ancient world, that offered you protection. He's refusing to protect his wife Hagar against his wife Sarai. Now, once again, this makes no sense to any of us. But in the ancient world, the idea was clear. Abram is removing himself from responsibility for all of this, and he is allowing the mother of his child to bear the brunt of wicked behavior. He shows all the moral courage of George Costanza or Ray Barone here. He just is despicable in allowing this to happen. Everybody's wrong. And at this point, I just want to look at you and, and you go, Pastor Matt, this is a yucky story. And it is. It goes back to our need for a Savior. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody messes up. And when we see these yucky stories, these hot mess stories in the Bible, not only are they supposed to be lessons for us to learn about what not to do, but they're also supposed to be lessons about who God is and what he can do in spite of our human sin. Everyone needs a Savior. Abram needed a Savior. Sarai needed a Savior. And Hagar needs a Savior. The story is going to turn now to the story of Hagar, but I do want to make mention to you that the next three, four chapters are all about God untying this knot. We're going to learn next week and the weeks after that God is going to continue to speak grace into the lives of these sinful people. 
even though they do wicked things, God's not done with them. It's good news for us. Even though God's people of faith have found themselves in a true Jerry Springer episode, God's going to begin to unravel the knot that they put themselves in. Abram and Sarai are going to pay for their sin. But we're going to see that over the course of time. They're going to pay a heavy price. But we want to see the rest of this lesson today is what the Lord does and how much he cares for everyone. Look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness. This is the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for a multitude. And the angel said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over and against all his kinsmen. So she called on the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing, or literally in the Hebrew, she says, you are the God who sees me. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well is called Beher Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So what's going on here? Hagar's running home to Egypt. That's what we see. To find her by the spring of water on the way to shore, that means she's halfway home to Egypt. She's had enough of the oppression in this household. So she's going to go bearing a child and try to try to get back to something that she knows. And as she's trying to run home, instead she are, runs straight into the arms of God. I love when the angel of the Lord of the Lord speaks questions into the lives of people. He asks Adam and Eve, where are you? They said, we hid because we were naked. He asks Cain, where's your brother? He says, am I my brother's keeper? Finally, someone gives him a positive response, just answers honestly, I'm running from my mistress, angel. Hagar just lays it out there. I've got to get out of there. And the first thing the angel of the Lord says to her is what? Comforting words? No. He says, go back. Your future does not lay in sneaking back into Egypt. But quickly upon the heels of directing her to return, he says, I have plans for even you, Hagar. I have plans for you. Your son will be the father of a multitude, which means you're going to be the mother of nations. That's not going to happen back in Egypt. That's going to happen if you follow my voice. Name him Ishmael. That means that God hears. God's listening to you, Hagar. He hears your prayers. What a promise. Now, Ishmael and his descendants form people groups even into today. And yes, he's a wild guy and his descendants have been wild people. But God speaks a promise into the life of Hagar. One that is unexpected. So much so that 
as she realizes that this angel of the Lord represents God in a full way, she says, I know now that you are the God who sees me. Abram didn't look after me. Sarai certainly didn't look after me. But you hear me, Ishmael. You are the God who sees me, Elroy. And she says, truly, I have seen the one who looks after me. What lesson does the writer of Genesis want us to see through this story of everybody being in error? That the person seemingly of least account, the person who is put upon, the person who has no choice in the matter, the person who's done the least wrong, the person who's, who, who, who is least in society, God has a plan for even her. Who is Hagar? Who was Ruth? Who was Mary? Before God. You see, this is a story smack in the middle of the story about these titans in the history of Christianity that reminds us that God has each one of us in mind. Nobody is outside earshot of God. No one is beyond the sight of our Father in heaven. He is the God who hears, and He is the God who sees. He has a plan for all. Had Hagar erred in this story? She certainly had. She should not have looked upon her mistress with contempt contempt. But once again, God doesn't limit his grace just to his seeming favorites. He speaks grace to all, and he has a plan for all. You might be watching today, and you're saying to yourself, I'm new to this entire Christianity thing. I don't even know how to be a good Christian. I don't know how my house should be. I don't know what my lifestyle should be. I don't know how to raise my kids to be Christian." His favorite is not somebody that sits two rows ahead of you at church who is the most demonstrative in worship and knows how to pray the right prayers. His favorite is you too. He's got a plan for you just as he has a plan for the person who looks far more religious than you do. For those of you in that case today, you say, just when I think I start living my life for God, I mess it up again. God wants to speak grace into your life. He has a plan. I need that word today. I need to know that I'm still in the grace of the Lord. Yes, I need a Savior. Yes, I mess up. Yes, I run from God sometimes, but I will run from God straight to God because he hears me and he sees me. You might not feel like all those spiritual people. You might be timid in your faith. You might even be scared to tell your family what's going on in your life with God. But God sees you he hears you, and he wants to speak grace into your life. We can have all these things that go on in our lives where we just think, ah, God doesn't have any interest in me. God doesn't care about me. I'm not like those other people. And then we remember Hagar, an Egyptian slave girl who gets caught up in a mess. And when she runs... God pursues.
lets us go back. The first thing is that God has a plan for all of us. He speaks grace to all of us. That's what we're learning about God through this story. But the second thing is God's always after runners to tell them to turn back. He doesn't say that it's going to be easy to live this life of faith in him. I can't imagine what it was going to cost Hagar to turn back and go back to Sarai and submit. Some of you might say, does God want me to go back and be oppressed? Well, that, that, that's not the story of every single human, no. And we don't know if the oppression continued. What we do know is that she had to go back into the situation that was hard for her to experience all God had for her. Jesus said that the way is narrow that he has us to walk on. And I know many times as Christians, it's easy for us to get to running. We run back to the life we used to know because for, for fleeting moments, it's more comforting. But if we'll listen to the voice of the God who hears will listen to the one who sees us, he can put us right back on the path of his promise. There's a couple of you watching today, I have no doubt this is the first time you've watched service in a number of weeks. You've been running a little bit back to that old life. You found it too hard, and I'm not, I'm not mocking you, I'm not being hard on you, you just found it too hard to even turn on a service in the midst of all of this. It's just he had other things to do. God's constantly after runners telling them to turn back. He's constantly pursuing the ones who are trying to get back to their old life where his promise is in the new life. That old way of living that you are so accustomed to, that worldly ethic that you are so, that's so ingrained in you, it has nothing for you. God has something for you. God speaks grace to everyone. He has a plan for all people. He's always pursuing runners to turn them back. But perhaps the most important lesson we can learn today is this. He is the God who hears. And he is the God who sees. I don't know if I pray my prayers right to have God answer them. God hears. I don't know if I'm righteous or holy enough to be in the favor of the Lord. God sees and he hears and he wants to speak grace anyhow. Does God want you to go on sinning and making a mess? Certainly not. Does God want you to do unrighteous things? No, he's holy. He wants you to be holy. Does God withhold his love because of our imperfection? No, he steps into it. He did something about it in his son, Jesus. Maybe you feel like a hot mess today. And you're thinking to yourself, I have no right to be seen or heard by God. And the answer is to that statement is you don't. You don't. But he loves you anyways. He sees right where you're at. He's heard every cry of your heart. And he has said, I will not leave him or her. I will not forsake them. I am the God who sees, I am the God who hears, and I am the God who saves. That's who he is. I think it's important that we learn lessons in this life about what not to do. It's true. 
I think there's plenty of things that we can learn not to do. But the most important lessons we can learn is who he is. Because when we truly believe him for who he is, our lives change. And the favor and the promises of God can be poured out. Might not be easy, but it is right. Might not be the thing that gives you the most instant gratification, but it will bring you long-term joy. God hears you today. God sees you today. you've been running, he wants to pull you back. If you feel that you're of little of no, or no account, he wants to prove you wrong. And if you feel like you have no right to his hearing or his seeing, he wants to give you a picture of Jesus. For he is our righteousness. And he is the mediator between God and man. And through Jesus, you have every right to be heard seen by God your Father. Let's pray. Lord God, who you are is so much more important even than what we think we learn. God, I'm not preaching a sermon today excusing sin or encouraging messy behavior. I'm simply relaying a story that you wanted in your word. A story about a seeming nobody who was seen, heard, and loved by you. One that you told to turn back and do the hard thing in order to receive all that you had for him. And one that you loved in spite of sin. God, we ask today that we would see you for who you are the one who has a plan, the one who tells us, turn back to me, and the one who sees and hears us in every circumstance. God, I pray that these aspects of your character would encourage our hearts today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. sing a song in just a moment, but I believe there's a word somebody needs to hear today. It's a song. So just open your ears and open your hearts. The Lord wants to tell you. And I know that you are for me. I know that you are for me.
I know that you will never leave me or forsake me. I know that you have come now, even if to write upon my heart, to remind me of who you are. AJ, sing that over the people one more time. We don't even need to do another song today. Just sing it over the people who are watching. It's the word from the Lord today. I know that you are for me. I know that you are for me. I know that you will never leave me or forsake me. I know that you have come now, even if to write upon my heart. Remind me of who you are. Who you are. I know you're for me. And I know that you are for me. I know that you are for me. I know that you will never leave me or forsake me. And I know that you have come now, even if to write upon my heart, to remind me of who you told me in seminary that preaching without application is a waste of time. You say, Pastor Matt, I don't know what the applicable points were today. Well, the applicable points are simple. Believe what he's writing on your heart about who he is. Leave those preconceived notions about God at the door and see him for who he is. The one who has a plan, the one who tells you to return, and the one who hears and sees you. In that, the change will come. God, we thank you for being with us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you real soon.